The following has been recorded at Cairn University. Any reproduction of this recording without the express permission of the university is prohibited. Good morning. It's a pleasure to be with you all this morning. I bring greetings from Christ Church Westchester. Uh, it is a delight to know many of your faculty. Uh, we have many members of our church who are graduates of this institution, many members of our church who are here this morning uh, with us on this front row. So if you'd like to uh, meet some of the members of our church, they'd love to meet you. And particularly if you're considering uh, pastoral ministry following uh, your studies here at Cairn, we'd love to talk with you. We have a pastoral internship at our church. But now I want to begin by opening us in prayer. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, whom we know as Father through our Lord Jesus Christ, we ask God that you would help us today as we give our attention to your word. We ask, Father, now that you would help us to focus our minds on your word. Father, that you would write its eternal truths on our hearts. Father, we ask in Christ's name uh, that you would build us up in a holy faith, that we might be more holy and more godly people. And we ask all of this in the name of our God who has revealed himself to us as Father, Son, and Spirit, we pray. Amen. William Tennant Sr. was a middle-aged Scotch-Irishman when he sailed from Northern Ireland to America in about 1718 with his wife and children. He had been married to the daughter of the Reverend Mr. Kennedy in May of 1702 in the county of Down in the north of Ireland. He had been ordained as a deacon in the Episcopal Church of Ireland on July 1st in 1704. He was ordained a priest on the 22nd of September in 1706, and after acting as a chaplain for an Irish nobleman for more than a decade, he then sailed for Pennsylvania. Soon after landing in Philadelphia, he settled in what would become his life pastorate, the Neshemini Presbyterian Church in Bucks County. It was there that William Tennant resolved to establish a school, a school to educate his four sons for gospel ministry. Nine additional students brought the original enrollment to 13, Before that time, no young man could enter the Presbyterian ministry without traveling to New England or even over to Scotland for their education. During the first few months, students boarded at nearby farms. They lived in the Tennant household where Miss Tennant was said to give them the necessary mothering. Tennant soon built just a small, humble log cabin within a few steps of his parsonage. And some of this small group of dedicated young men moved into the building in an attic that was above the single classroom where they cooked their meals over an open fire. The students began every day very early. 5 a.m., they concluded every day at 9 p.m. after a full day of study. They attended the Neshemini Church on Sundays. But like every good gospel work, the little college had its own enemies. There were critics. People would look at the work and they would criticize it because they were used to European universities and large stone edifices, beautiful buildings and opulent structures. So they looked at Tennant's college and contemptuously called it Log College because it was a small house about 20 feet long. But William refused to be deterred. He had been educated overseas at Edinburgh University. He was fluent in Greek and Hebrew and Latin. He was a well-read theologian, but most importantly... He was a pastor of unusual ability, a man of actual genuine piety and evangelistic zeal. He was a warm and faithful teacher who made the use of what he had. And his little school of the prophets, as 
the English evangelist George Whitfield called it, marked an era in the history of training people in America. But it was hidden. It was hidden amidst an unimpressive structure. No one would look at the 13 students in that law college and see what it truly was or what it would eventually become. No one could see the fruit of what it would one day bring. So they mocked it. They disdained it. They disregarded it as insignificant. Matthew 13 tells us a parable, a parable from our Lord Jesus about the insignificant giving birth to the significant. Why? Because people were asking, could what was really happening in Jesus' life and ministry be the establishment of God's kingdom? Was not the kingdom supposed to be a mighty display of the defeat of evil with the Messiah who would charge in and push out all of God's enemies? Doesn't the actual presence of the kingdom mean the removal of every affliction for God's people? I mean, Jesus' miracles are really nice, but where are the rest of his promises? And as Jesus preached, questions like these would have gone through the mind of all of his hearers, just like they go through your mind or the mind of people in your churches, whether they're friends of the gospel or foes of the gospel, when they hear sermons from pulpits week after week after week, and nothing really seems to change. So Jesus tells a parable about small and insignificant beginnings, and he says, no one should be put off by what seems to be unimpressive. Like the tiny mustard seed which grows into a large plant, so the kingdom is present, even if it is hidden, unnoticed, ignored, its full revelation will come. Notice first what he says about his kingdom. Look again with me in verse 31. He put another parable for them saying, the kingdom of heaven is like. Now careful readers of Matthew's gospel will observe that this parable, like the majority of the other parables in this chapter, are trying to teach us something about the kingdom of heaven. If you have your Bible open and you follow along, you'll see in chapter 12, verse 24, the kingdom of heaven is like. Chapter 12, verse 33, the kingdom of heaven is like. Chapter 13, verse 44, the kingdom of heaven is like. Chapter 13, verse 45, the kingdom of heaven is like. Chapter 13, verse 47, again, the kingdom of heaven is like. And now here again, verse 31, the kingdom of heaven is like. Every king must have a kingdom, and Jesus is modeling how we go evangelizing, telling people the good news about this kingdom. Brothers and sisters in Christ, when we share the gospel, we are to preach about the kingdom. We're to share the gospel in terms of Jesus' death, burial, resurrection, and ascension. But do not forget that the gospel work actually brings about an entire kingdom. Jesus' proclamation from the beginning to the end was about the kingdom. He tells us, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And as he goes throughout all of Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. And Jesus would go into their cities and their villages teaching in their synagogues and their towns, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, telling all of his disciples, proclaim as you go the gospel of the kingdom because the kingdom of heaven is at hand and this gospel of the kingdom is to be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. Jesus' gospel proclamation includes the kingdom. Strictly speaking, the kingdom is not a piece of real estate for Jesus. And in Matthew's gospel, Jesus makes this very clear by using the phrase kingdom of heaven alongside the phrase kingdom of God. His kingdom is not merely an earthly kingdom ruled by a political messiah. It's a heavenly kingdom ruled by a heavenly messiah. 
It's a kingdom that stands over earthly kingdoms, and it's in a kingdom that will replace earthly kingdoms because his kingdom is not a human kingdom and it brings all human kingdoms to end. Though the kingdom does not include every individual, it's a universal kingdom. Though the kingdom faces opposition, it's an eternal kingdom. Jesus teaches us that the kingdom is not a piece of real estate. So we're not to be Christians who are simply hung up on what's happening in the nation state of Israel. Because as John's gospel teaches us, his kingdom is not of this world. Friends, part of the reason that we have so much frustration as professing believers is because we're living for something from this world. But Jesus, by simply teaching us in the parables, tells us that what we're longing for, what we're pining for, the yearnings of our heart are ultimately preparing us for another world. When Jesus preaches about the kingdom, he has in mind the reign of God, the rule of God that breaks into the world and it breaks off the power of Satan in people's lives. It frees every one of God's children from the hostage of the devil and it breaks into the believer's life and it sets them free so that they can actually live. This is why Paul says in Colossians, he's delivered us from the domain of darkness and he's transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption the forgiveness of sins. When Jesus did his evangelism, he didn't simply talk about forgiveness and atonement. He taught of a reality, of a world, of a kingdom much larger than our own personal faith experience, much larger than our own individual congregations. Fellow believers in here today, I wonder if your gospel presentations look like that. And if you're not a Christian here today, Let me invite you into something more than simply you being right with God. You must be right with God. You must repent of your sins. You must place your faith in Jesus Christ. You must ask God to forgive you of all of the wrongs that you have committed. You must hope in Jesus Christ as the one who can make you right with God, asking God to make his life, your life, his death, your death, his resurrection, your resurrection. But brothers and sisters, he has called you to something more, to be a part of his people. And he has placed you in his kingdom. And you are to show that you're a part of that kingdom by being involved in his church. Brothers and sisters, conversion is more than your personal experience of Jesus. It's about a personal relationship with him in community with all of his people. And friends, if you're here and you say that you hope in Christ and you don't identify with God's church, I think Jesus would take significant question to how you understand your faith. Are you actually who you think you are? Do you really love God if you don't love his kingdom and his church? Now let me be clear, there's no kingdom apart from his sacrifice. But his sacrifice opens up so much more for the believer. It's a kingdom where the rule of Satan is broken. It's where the work of God spreads. Christ renews all things. His sacrifice not only saves us, but it changes and renews the world. Friends, sometimes in our evangelism, in our preaching, in our teaching, we need to answer some pastoral questions for people that open them up to a reality that is much bigger than what they have going on in their own lives. And when we find different ways to get to the gospel in this sense, we will help them see the radicality of what Jesus has done for us. The kingdom of heaven is like, verse 31, means this is how God's rule is established, through the preaching and teaching of the kingdom. So brothers and sisters, if you're in Christ, let me encourage you to be confident in your evangelism because this picture in this parable gives us a picture of how the gospel spreads. It's growing. Sometimes visibly, 
but oftentimes invisibly. But that's what makes it so wonderful for Jesus. That means you shouldn't measure your success by what you see. You can do the work of evangelists about Christ's kingdom confidently knowing that his kingdom grows even if you can't discern how it is growing. And yet the tragedy in Matthew's gospel is that not everyone welcomes or even recognizes this kingdom when it comes. If you go back and you start reading through Matthew's gospel, one of the things that you'll see in Matthew chapter 12 is that the Pharisees are indignant because the man who was healed on the Sabbath was healed on the Sabbath. So they say in Matthew chapter 12 verse 14, The Pharisees went out and they conspired against Jesus how to destroy him. They're indignant and they demand that Jesus do things their way and on their terms. They know all of the religious rules, but they don't know what they point to. And in Matthew 23, we see that Jesus says that people like this are hypocrites. Friends, I wonder if that would describe your faith today. You know all the religious rules. You're at Jesus' school learning about Jesus. You're learning the right things, sitting here in a chapel because you're required to be here. And yet, the rest of your life shows that though you know all of the right rules, you don't know really what they point to or who they point to. And how you live privately is nothing like what you're here on campus. Jesus says in very harsh terms to people who live like this, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, For you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces and you neither enter yourselves and don't allow others to enter in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. Friends, a hypocrite is someone who pretends to be religious and isn't. They're the kind of person who prepares for worship but gossips in the foyer. The kind of person who says that they love Christ and they post what they read in their Bible on their social media and then they refuse forgiveness to somebody who's offended them. And the greatest shame for all of the hypocrites is that they don't recognize the kingdom even when the king comes in Matthew's gospel, even when they hear about the preaching of the kingdom from Jesus himself. The kingdom of heaven is like, but what is it like? To what can his kingdom be compared? His kingdom, notice second, his comparison. Notice again in verse 31. The kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It's the smallest of all seeds, Jesus draws this analogy between a tiny garden seed and the kingdom of heaven because at first glance, it seems that there's little to show for all of this sowing of the seed. There's little to show for all of this effort that Jesus is putting out in Matthew's gospel. Despite being the greatest teacher that the world has ever known, despite all of the awestruck crowds who are following Jesus throughout Matthew's gospel, Despite all of the marvelous and miraculous things that Jesus has been doing, there is no substantial platform for Jesus' ministry. There is no following to subsidize his prophetic brand. So the skeptical observer in Matthew's gospel would look at this quote of kingdom and conclude, well, nothing is really happening. That doesn't look really like a kingdom at all. Nothing's gonna come of all of this kingdom work anyways, so who cares? But Jesus' vivid description is pregnant with meaning. His parable actually teaches us something about this dynamic and the nature of his kingdom. It reveals to us the characteristics of his kingdom. Look again at what he says in verse 31. The kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed. It is the smallest of all seeds. The mustard seed is so tiny that when you hold it in the palm of your hand, it looks more like black dust than seed. It's a sheer miracle. 
The mustard seed kingdom's beginning is so small. It's so brittle. It's so fragile. It's so questionable. It's a wonder that there's anything at all. And in the eyes of men, it seems impossible to identify something so fragile with Jesus' kingdom, the kingdom of God. But Jesus tells us that God's kingdom is in that beginning, making the first of its momentum moves to the fulfillment of all of God's purposes. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Friends, God moved history to save your souls even when people could not discern it. But why does Jesus use this dubious image to communicate this great truth of how God has acted? Because his followers needed to know the same thing that you need to know this morning, that the kingdom is present, even if, and sometimes especially when, they can't see it. They didn't need to know that the kingdom was coming. They had been taught that, they knew that. They knew that the kingdom was coming. Jesus had already described that the kingdom was coming. But if we read Matthew's gospel, we see that there are times when he tells us that the kingdom is present and it is not yet here. Matthew chapter 12, verse 27. And if I cast out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. And then at other times, it's not yet arrived. Matthew 26, verse 29. I tell you all, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Jesus insists throughout Matthew's gospel that the kingdom is near, but it is not yet here. So when we read of this proverbially small mustard seed and learn that something so tiny could actually be pointing us to the kingdom, we are actually already predisposed because of Jesus' teaching to see this paradox of the hidden unrecognized status of God's kingship compared with his future consummation when he returns. When that which is hidden now will be uncovered then and everyone will be able to see it. They will be able to see how God was present after all. Jesus' parable here is not so much a story as it is simply an observation. An observation that is so memorable that Matthew, Mark, and Luke all recorded. An observation that actually challenges human perception about smallness and significance. A few years ago, a friend of mine, his church told a story about a member at their church, a young man named Roger. Roger was born with cerebral palsy. His body is contorted. His hands are disfigured. His speech is slurred. He's not able to talk clearly. But he's always at church on time. And he serves as greeter in the first of their two services. When Roger isn't in his wheelchair, he's on the ground maneuvering, like a dog, eating his food from the hands of someone who's trying to care for him or trying to brush his teeth with the help of a caretaker before he crawls into his bed at night. He can't even shave his own face. But when asked about his condition, Roger said this, I don't have to listen to the lies that since I am disabled, I'm not important. God made me who I am, and I was born with cerebral palsy Not because of an accident, but on purpose. And when I think of on purpose, I say, oh man, how can I not worship God? God loved me so much that he gave me cerebral palsy so that I can encourage the whole body of the church and non-believers. Brothers and sisters, Jesus' mustard seed kingdom teaches us that we have it all wrong. 
This parable teaches us that what we think is powerful is not. That who we think is powerful is not. That what seems inconsequential to us in this life is not. It teaches us of the presence of God's kingdom amidst weakness and brokenness and tragedy and pain and trial and testing and actually gives us hope and confidence and encouragement that our lives matter even when everyone else would pass over them. And in those moments it teaches us that Jesus and his kingdom are better than all of the glory that this world would offer unto us. Because Jesus loved us so much when our lives were insignificant and inconsequential and filled with sin and ruined because of it and separated from God that he died for us anyways. Brothers and sisters, Jesus teaches us that your life matters, insignificant as it is, because you're made in God's image and that his kingdom is present even when it looks like it's not. Brothers and sisters, it teaches us that we have it all wrong. I'm wondering if you're here this morning and you've had it all wrong. You think that this whole Jesus thing is just simply something that you're required to do because of the school that you're at or the church that your parents attend. Brothers and sisters, if that's you this morning, I invite you to trust in this Christ, to repent of your sins and believe in this Christ and no longer walk in the way of error, but walk in the way of truth by believing in this Savior Jesus, the Christ of God. His kingdom, his comparison. Notice third, his point. Look at verse 32. But when it has grown, it is larger than all of the garden plants and becomes a tree, so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. The parable of the soils, if we go back and read chapter 13, and the parable of the wheat and the weeds, if we go back and read chapter 13, have actually paved the way for this parable because they teach us that there's this inevitable, divinely intended progression from sowing to harvest, from hiddenness to revelation, from insignificance to significance. And despite all of the appearances to the contrary, the kingdom is growing, the harvest will come, the significance will be revealed, but it will come in God's time. And it will come in God's way. And it will not come by human effort or human ingenuity or human creativity. It will not come by any of the things that we will put forward for human logic. It will come in God's timing and pleasure. And in due time, all of the sowing and all of the labor and all of the work will produce its intended effect, even if human insight cannot fathom how the process works. So this parable is actually a message about rightly interpreting and responding to a period of apparent insignificance. And it's in that context, with that type of contrast, that we see its beginning in contrast to its final end, which is actually the whole point of Jesus' teaching. It's a familiar theme. We see it all of the time. Great oaks from little acorns grow. Though the mustard seed is so tiny, so it's so, even though it's so insignificant, it produces a large garden plant, more than six feet in height. Tree is a bit of an exaggeration, but the term is actually used to exhort us, those who have witnessed this proclamation of the kingdom, that they would not despise the day of small beginnings. They don't need to be impatient about how God is bringing about his work. Brothers and sisters, I wonder if that characterizes you. An impatience with God's work. You don't like the way that he's doing it. In the timing that he's doing it. 
You're frustrated with how he's working it out. They should not be impatient. Its full majesty will be revealed. The focus is on the contrast from the beginning to the end. And Jesus' teaching warns us against underestimating apparent insignificance. As the proclamation of the kingdom invites people in, however unimpressive it might look now, whatever began in his Galilean ministry will eventually, by the power of God, prove to be of ultimate significance for your life and the life of every person that you've ever met. The life of your parents, the life of your grandparents, the life of your future Lord willing children and the church members in your church, the people that you work with and the people that you'll never meet on planet earth. His life is significant for all of their lives and one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God. Even if now its power is hidden, its significance is obscured. Its growth doesn't look very spectacular and all of your labor seems to be in vain. We see this not only here, but we actually see this at the end of the Bible. If you go later today, you just read from Revelation chapter 22, you'll find these words. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit in each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of all nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the lamb will be in it and his servants will worship him. All of reality, all of time and eternity is presented by John as standing before the lamb in God's kingdom and his royal presence is seen by all. There's no longer any question. On that day, it will be very clear that Jesus is Lord and that all who believed in him were right to believe in him. Friends, if you're a believer here, that vision is actually intended to encourage you to continue to persevere. In the midst of unspeakable suffering in your life, when you've been mistreated or alienated or, God forbid, abused, It encourages you to continue and to persevere when your parents think you're crazy for being a Christian or your friends mock you or they laugh at you because you would rather be obedient to Christ than disobedient to Christ. It's meant to encourage you when you're in the gospel ministry and it doesn't look like anything that you're doing is working or that your studies were all in vain. It's meant to encourage you that God is planning something much bigger for your life and the life of everybody who trusts in his Christ. Friends, we will only praise God rightly and offer him praise when we realize and remember that he reigns supreme now and it will be evident on that day that he reigns supreme. These truths go together for Jesus as he prepares his disciples then and his disciples now for a world that will reject them and overlook them, and malign them, and make fun of them, and discourage them, and belittle them, because they say what God says from the Bible, that a man can only be married to a woman, that a man is a man and a woman is a woman, that Jesus is Lord and Muhammad is not God's prophet, that you must repent of your sins and believe in the gospel. And as the church, we live in readiness for that day when we will praise him for being right in our obedience to these truths. From the apparent insignificance of his ministry 
to the resulting great kingdom that it will bring. So the kingdom of heaven, which right now is inconspicuous, will one day embrace all nations. The parable pictures the presence of God's kingdom in Jesus' ministry, even when others do not recognize it. So Jesus' followers should not be discouraged. It may presently seem as insignificant as a mustard seed, but eventually it will be the largest tree in the garden. Its growth may be imperceptible, and its influence may seem as something that no one should give attention to, but on that day, it will be pervasive throughout all the world. As God's humble servant, Jesus uses a humble symbol to teach his followers about his upside-down mustard seed kingdom. While critics contemptuously referred to William Tennant's school as Law College, 18th century British North America was alive with intellectual fervor and enthusiasm associated with the wave of religious revivals that we now know are the Great Awakening. And that awakening had deep social and spiritual significance in the fast-growing English colonies. And that famous awakening is associated with influential Protestant ministers like Jonathan Edwards and George Whitfield and John Wesley. And it was during that awakening that this sparse frontier outpost sprang up as one of God's outposts affiliated with seminaries of, the, of its kind in that era. An outpost that many believed to be the first of its kind, an institution that was for the training of ministers in British North America. It didn't look like much, but between 1727 and 1745, in the Back County Seminary, it exerted such significant influence on colonial education and Presbyterian church polity that its curriculum was simple and demanding, and William Tennant's school began to produce ministers with guiding force. And that log frame structure that everybody made fun of, actually where Tennant drilled his students in languages and scriptural studies and a new style of preaching that was known by the American preachers as expositional preaching, we saw that there began to be a change. Law colleges surrounding were modest at best. They were insignificant to many. But Tennant was faithful, even though he never wrote a book and he never had an influential following. History here teaches us that some men accomplish more by those that they educate than by their own personal labors. And this was certainly the case, in, uh, true in the case of William Tennant. His graduates, including his four sons, grew to prominence throughout the middle colonies, establishing churches and schools modeled on the law college. In time, their influence spread so far beyond the fledging academy of this Pennsylvania backcountry that they started to exert influence in what we now would call the American Academy. And though sometimes it's mistakenly associated with the founding of the 1746 College of New Jersey, which later became known to us as Princeton University, the ties there are not insignificant. Three of the early trustees of Princeton and benefactors of that institution were graduates of law college. Samuel Blair, Gilbert Tennant, and William Tennant Jr. Law College graduate Samuel Finley later served as Princeton's fifth president. His predecessor, Samuel Davies, was a student of Blair. All 13 of the original graduates of Law College became pioneers in Christian education, and a number of them became founders of educational institutions. There's a monument out here in your county. You can go look at it, and there, at that monument, you'll see a list of 51 different colleges that stemmed from that little backwood school. William Tennant Sr. died in 1746 at the age of 73. The following year, all of his life efforts in that building closed. But Dr. Archibald Alexander later observed that there was a major advantage for that law college and all of its students 
because there was a spirit of piety that had been nourished in them, in that institution. And he said, because of that, we have reason to believe that there was the teaching of the Holy Spirit. That was a major factor in the school's success. William Tennant has stood faithful to the cause for which he faithfully gave his life, even when no one could see what it would produce. Friends, I wonder if that would be true of your life today. That you'll be faithful to Christ Jesus if you profess to be a believer, even when it doesn't look like it's producing its intended effect. If you'd be faithful when you face opposition, if you'd be faithful when it's hard, if you'd be faithful to produce something that will have eternal significance, even if that means in this life, your life is obscured. I wonder if you'd be faithful to this Christ who has taught us that the beginnings of that type of faithfulness actually produce something that one day will be seen to be of eternal significance to the glory of God in Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you for these friends, the privilege to preach to these students today. I pray for believer and unbeliever alike that today, from your word, they would be encouraged. That believers would be encouraged to persevere and to persist. Students and teachers, faculty and friends, staff alike. And Father, I pray for those who are not Christians here today, who today are in here and this whole Jesus thing seems absurd. Father, I pray that today, even as they think of the apparent absurdity of the gospel of Jesus Christ crucified for sinners, the apparent insignificance of the church of Jesus Christ upon modern culture, that they might see in this parable from this text how you are producing something that they might not be able to observe outwardly, but has eternal significance and draw them to a saving faith in Jesus Christ. And I ask all of this in his great name. Amen. Oh, in the grace of Christ.